0: The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org.
1: Today's scripture reading comes from Mark twelve twenty-eight through 32 One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: You may be seated. Thank you, Chris. Everyone hates a hypocrite, right? I know early in the pandemic, there were some photos taken of political leaders not wearing the masks that they mandated for others, and everyone went crazy over the perceived hypocrisy. I recently heard a movie critic complain about the hypocrisy of the Oscars for condemning one actor going up on stage and slapping another while giving awards to movies that are filled with violence. And this critic said they were frustrated by the hypocrisy of it all. Years and years ago, when Carrie and I lived in Detroit, a news crew, I think they were hired solely for this purpose, to follow the mayor around watching for hypocrisy and they found it like every week. It was riveting news. The only time in my life I watched the evening news to find out what they caught the mayor doing that week. Like everyone hates hypocrisy unless it's our own, right? We, we hate hypocrisy out there, but we're okay with it in here right? because all of us are hypocrites. None of us have our, a perfect match between our outside and inside. I know I don't, I'm sure you don't. I've shared this before, but I vividly remember the Sunday. I was sitting right down here, and we were about to pass the offering plates. This was back when we used to pass offering plates. And as the offering plate was coming, I took a check out of my shirt pocket, and I handed it to my son to put in the offering plate. I did this each week trying to, you know, get them involved in the giving. And so I hand it to him. He, he takes it, and he pops the gum out of his mouth, and he puts it in the check. He folds it up and puts it in his pocket. i <laughs> going, what are you doing? I guess he assumed I just was randomly handing him a piece of trash for his gum. And I was sitting there and I was so annoyed. And I was about to get up and preach about anger. Yeah. I'm a hypocrite. I mean, how many parents in here encourage your kids to read the Bible that you struggle to read? How many remind others to only say nice things as you disparage others under your breath? The truth is that we all struggle with hypocrisy. The term hypocrite actually comes from the performing arts. It refers to an actor playing a role, someone who is pretending to be someone else, often wearing a mask or makeup or a costume. Shakespeare famously said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. There are ways in which all of us play roles and put on masks. So as we've been studying the Gospel of Mark these last number of weeks, we've been learning what it means to follow Jesus. Now, he's showing us this. Here is Jesus. He's worthy of following, and here's what it looks like to be a follower of his. Well, a temptation for many of those early Christians would have been to, to sort of think about following Jesus by, by looking at the lives of those religious leaders from their youth and somewhat imitating them and just trying to sort of mix a dash of Jesus in. But Jesus has been intent on showing his disciples how how following him is a radical departure from what they had witnessed from those in positions of leadership. So in, in the religion of their youth, the focus was on sort of external conformity. It was on rule keeping, which is a perfect breeding ground for hypocrisy. And so Mark chapter 12, this section of it, it it's gonna help us better understand and identify hypocrisy. Here's why. So, so that we can put it to death in our lives. See, Jesus doesn't call us as his followers to put on masks and perform a religious performance, to to, to act out a part on a stage. Here's what he does. He calls us to a brand new way of living that begins on the inside and works itself out. We are all hypocrites. But as we follow Jesus, what we begin to see by his grace is that the hypocrisy lessens. And we start to live with a genuineness that only Jesus can produce in us. So as we study these events this morning, here's what I think you might be tempted to ask. And it's not a bad question, but I want, to ask, I want to encourage you to ask more. You might be tempted to ask, am I a hypocrite? I'm going to answer for that You already. Yes. So you don't have to ask that question. Here's the question you should ask. Where am I acting hypocritically? Where am I acting? None of us perfectly match inside and out. So where are those areas where I'm being hypocritical? And then, then as God answers this, as he exposes this, as we work through this text today, then repent of it. And you can receive this morning his grace to walk openly and honestly before the Lord and with your brothers and sisters. So our text this morning begins with two examples of hypocrisy. The first one comes in verse 13. Look at it with me. Mark 12, verse 13. It says, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him with his words. When they came, they said to him, teacher, listen to the flattery, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Now this whole thing is a setup. These two groups are from polar opposite perspectives and they're working together. So in our terms, this would be like a Green Deal Democrat and a Tea Party member sponsoring a bill. We'd be like, "Mm, something fishy is going on here. So the Pharisees, they're this strict pro-Jewish nationalistic party that hates everything about Rome. They hate that Rome has occupied and controls Jewish. They hate Roman rule, everything, in every way they're anti-Rome. The Herodians are supportive of King Herod, who was appointed by Rome. So as long as Rome stays in charge and Herod stays in charge, then they have a measure of power and influence. And so we've got to ask, why are they working together? And the text tells us they're they're trying to trap Jesus like an animal because their goal is to put him down. And so they believe this question that they've thought of. You can sort of imagine that before they came to Jesus, they were back and they were scheming together and finding what's the perfect question to trap Jesus. They they think this question only has two possible answers. Should we pay taxes? So one answer would be, no, don't pay taxes. And and this, this would be the Herodians' view. The other answer is, or this would be the Pharisees' view. The other answer would be, yes, pay taxes. This is the Herodians' view. And here's why they think this is a great question. No matter what Jesus answers, someone's going to be unhappy with him. So let's let's say Jesus says, says, yes, pay your taxes. It would be easy to stir up the Jewish crowds against Jesus. Jesus is supportive of Rome. He's supportive of our occupiers, like he's against us. If he says no... Then they can go and report to Rome that Jesus is another one of these Jewish insurrectionists. He's a revolutionary. He's, he's stirring up a rebellion. So they have him in a perfect no-win situation. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus sees right through their hypocrisy. They don't care about the answer. I mean, verse 14 is their flattery of him. All of it to show, right? In this case, the crowd is their audience. These religious leaders are putting on masks. They're pretending to care about what Jesus says, pretending to listen to him. But then something happens they don't expect. Jesus asks for a coin, and here's what he says in verse 16. Whose image is on this coin? <clears throat> well, the answer is Caesar. And so Jesus says, oh, so give it to him. Give it to him. See, like a, like a driver's license, the object belongs to the one whose image is on it. But then Jesus goes further. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Okay, so this coin belongs to Caesar because Caesar's image is on it. What belongs to God then? And the answer is everything that bears his image. Well, what bears God's image? Every man woman and child. See, the, the Pharisees and Herodians, they would have remembered the account of creation in Genesis 1 where God says, let us make man in our image. So, so the, the money they use with the image of Caesar can be given back to Caesar, but they who bear God's image belong to God. <clears throat> every thought, every action, every desire, every dream, every cell, in their body, every longing in their heart, all of that belongs to God. In fact, even Caesar himself bears the image of God. So Caesar belongs to him. That means they can even pay taxes to the government who occupies them because invading armies are even subject to God's control. (laughs) You see, they ask a question in order to trap Jesus. Here's what they get in response. A sentence-long theological masterclass about God's sovereign control over all things and the responsibility of each man, woman, and child to submit to him as master. So after they failed so spectacularly to trap Jesus, a second group comes. They try, to, they try again. And here again, we see the hypocrisy of the religious elite. Look at verse 18. <coughs> Excuse me. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Here's their question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. So the second also took her when he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Here it is. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven all had married her. Now, the Sadducees, they they have more political power than the Pharisees, but they have even worse theology. So, here in verse 18, it says, they don't believe that there's a resurrection from the dead. And so, why do they ask this question? Well, this, this question is designed in their minds, this sort of crazy scenario is all designed to show how silly or how foolish resurrection is. It's based on something called leveret marriage. If you were with us in, in November, December, we studied the story of Judah and Tamar. And this, this, this teaching of levirate marriage comes up. But basically, in order to carry on someone's line, if a man dies before he has children and he has an unmarried brother, the unmarried brother would marry the widow and he would raise children. Any children that he has, the first one would bear his brother's name to carry on his brother's line. And so that's what this is based on. But, but they take this and they turn it into this somewhat ridiculous scenario imagine this, like this happens seven times, all to the same family, all of them die, and there are never any children. It's a, it's a ridiculous scenario, but the point of it, at least in their minds, is to demonstrate a problem with resurrection. Basically saying, see how messy and convoluted it would be if people rose from the dead. Well, Jesus answers quickly and decisively, and he says the problem is not with resurrection. Here's the problem. You don't know the Bible, and you don't know God's power. So Jesus first corrects their view of resurrection, and then he shows them where this comes from in the Old Testament. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, isn't this a reason why you're mistaken? I, I, I just love that. Like said, with such confidence. He didn't say you're mistaken. He says, isn't this why you're completely wrong? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus says there's no marriage in the resurrection. Now this is a little scary to us, but it, but it makes sense. Let's consider for a moment, why, why do people get married? What's the purpose of marriage? Well, the first purpose of marriage is to picture the love Christ has for his people. So Christ, like a groom, marries his people like a bride. And we're told that every marriage is designed to, to show this sort of cosmos, cosmic picture of the sacrificial love of Christ for the church. That's the first purpose. Here's the second purpose. Marriage is for Christian sanctification. Marriage helps us die to our sin and live to righteousness because when you are all of a sudden placed in this type of close proximity with another sinner, what happens? Sin is exposed, right? This is is what you learn in your first year of marriage. Wow, they're a lot worse than I thought they were. And they know the same about you, right? That's actually how God designed it. Sin starts to be exposed so that we can help each other become more like Jesus. Second reason. Here's a third reason. Be fruitful and multiply. Within the context of marriage, we have children, and these children we raise to know and love the Lord. Well, think about all three purposes. The picture of Christ, the growth in our own sanctification, and producing offspring. Are any of these necessary after Jesus returns? No. And so that's why Jesus says there's no longer a purpose for marriage after the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's the scary part, especially for those who are part of a loving marriage is that this sounds initially like we lose something valuable after Christ returns. Right? I I love my wife. I don't want to not be married to her. And here's what we need to understand. That nothing of value is lost in the resurrection. Though marriage will not exist, relationships will be deeper and richer and more wonderful than anything we can even imagine now. We will know each other truly and deeply without sin and deceit. And so we think maybe oh, the resurrection of the dead, this one relationship, marriage will diminish. That's not what happens. What happens is all other relationships far exceed anything we experience in this world that's been cursed by sin. And so here's what we need to understand what Jesus is saying, that life in God's kingdom is not less in any way than life in this world. Well, the Sadducees, they fail to understand the resurrection. They they don't get this radical reorienting of the world that will happen when Jesus returns. And they, they fail to see how the Old Testament Scriptures have actually taught this. And so Jesus gives them a little bit of a lesson here from Exodus 3. Look at verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, he knows this is the real issue. They don't believe this will happen. He's like, haven't you read in the book of Moses... In the passage about the burning bush, now this is, a, this is a passage every Israelite would have been intimately familiar with. Of course they've read it. They haven't memorized They've talked about it over and over since they were little kids. How God said to them, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. See, when God made this statement to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead but God doesn't say, well, Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am currently. I am their God. And they still live. And the promises I made to them are still intact. See, the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only matter if they will rise from the dead. Otherwise, they simply didn't get them. We're told, and every Israelite would have known this, that God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham? What good is an everlasting covenant if no one lasts forever? So one thing we learn about the hypocrisy from these two examples, let's, let's, let's consider this, is that hypocrisy is not the result of ignorance. This isn't because of ignorance, this is because they rejected the truth. In fact, did you notice none of them, these are deep theological questions, they wouldn't be that bad except they, they didn't care about the answer. They weren't trying to learn. They weren't trying to grow. In each of these cases, there's ulterior motives. They're masking their true intention. And did you notice in both cases, they misuse scripture, which is a common result of hypocrisy, that the word of God no longer stands over us as authority, with authority to judge or correct us. Instead, we wield it. In our hypocrisy, we wield it like a weapon to get our way. So we've seen these two examples of hypocrisy. Now now let's go next to the root of hypocrisy. So here's what it looks like, but let's get down. What, what actually brings this about? What causes it? Well, Jesus asked an important question, which begins to expose this. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say the Messiah is the son of David? So the scribes, these would have been just sort of a, more of a generic word for religious leaders and teachers. They would interpret the, coming, the passages about the coming Messiah, the king that all Israel was waiting for, as being referring to someone who must come from the line of King David. And this is an accurate interpretation. But then Jesus quotes David himself in Psalm 110, and he's showing here that the scribes have overlooked a vital part of the Messiah's identity. So look at verse 36. David himself says by the Holy Spirit, and here's a quote of Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And here's here's Jesus asking now, David himself calls him Lord. How then can be his son? So here's the question Jesus is posing. How can the Messiah, the one we're pinning all of our hopes and dreams on, be both David's son and David's Lord? How is this possible? How can you be both? And he says not, not only do the religious leaders not know how to answer it, they never even thought to ask it. Like they missed a pretty significant marker of the Messiah's identity. (laughs) Well, Jesus asks this question for two reasons. The first reason is he wants the crowds to see that these religious leaders are not reliable guides to determining the identity of the Messiah. Like, so these religious leaders would say, like, listen to us. Like, we'll know the Messiah when he arrives. We'll point him out to us. Just follow our example. And Jesus is saying, they don't get it. They don't get it, they didn't even ask the right questions. But, he, 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 but then he does this for a second reason is he's showing the humility of the Messiah. That one who is worthy to be David's Lord humbles himself to become David's son. That the son of God becomes a son of man. And this is a stark contrast to the religious leaders. The rightful heir to the kingdom of God humbles himself in order to serve others. There's nothing hypocritical about the Messiah. Okay, now let's think about the humility of the Messiah in contrast to the common practice of these religious leaders. Look what Jesus says next, verse 38. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. See what he's saying? Here's, here's what your religious leaders are after. They're after the acclaim and adoration, the affection, the acceptance of other people. They want everyone to be impressed with them. You see, at the root of hypocrisy is this. It's a love of self. They love themselves so much. In fact, what breeds hypocrisy is when we get our self-worth not from our creator, but from what other people think and say about us. See, hypocrisy happens when we live for the approval and acceptance of others. If that's our ultimate goal. If this is what we live for, I just need to be accepted, I need to be approved, I need people to think highly of me. If we live for this as our ultimate goal, then we will do whatever is necessary to protect our carefully cultivated image so that no one will reject us. Friends, this is a depressing way to live. It is exhausting if you're enslaved to others' opinions about you. Here's why. Because everything we do, we've got, to, we've got to sort of constantly be evaluating. How are people going to respond? What are they thinking? What will they say about this? What will they do? How will they receive it? And, and, and how do you do that? Because you don't know. People's opinions are fickle. People change their opinions for absolutely no reason. So instead of asking what's true, which is a much easier standard to figure out because truth doesn't change, we ask what will they think, what will they say, and it is exhausting. See, chasing the approval of others is like chasing the wind. You might think you've caught it, but it will blow wherever and whenever it wants, no matter what you do. So Jesus is contrasting here his own humility, how he humbled himself and took on this, this form of the son of David with the, the sort of self-aggrandizing religious leaders, but he also provides a second contrast with them. Another beautiful example of what it means to live for God, not the approval of others. Look at verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. How does Jesus know that the rich people are putting in large sums? Well, the answer is because this is a type of performance art. Right? You go and you, you get, you take your money and you, you have it exchanged for this the smallest units of measurement possible. It's like turning all your dollars into pennies. And then you go up in front of everyone and there's these big receptacles and you start pouring them slowly in. And it's, you know wow, look at how much he's giving. And where did they learn this? Well, they're merely imitating the religious leaders that they've watched do this for so long. Make a show out of their giving, right? Some sort of performance that's designed to impress others with your piety. You know, Jesus is impressed with something, but it's not that. Jesus is impressed with the widow who has very little but gives it all to God. And this is what it looks like to live free from hypocrisy. If the root of hypocrisy is a love for self that's seen in a longing for the approval of others, this widow provides a perfect contrast. She's concerned about this, God. She loves him. She just loves him. And she wants to do what pleases him. See, Jesus sees what everyone else misses. Jesus is not impressed with what you do on the outside. He sees the real you. The part of you that no one else can see, Jesus sees. See, Jesus isn't impressed by masks or makeup or costumes because he sees right through them. When he looks at this widow, he doesn't see someone who has little to offer God. He sees someone who offers God everything. Do you feel like you don't have much to offer God? Do you? That's, That's great. That's great. Because he doesn't need anything. Like God needs nothing from you. And so here's what he desires. You. You. Honest. Sinful. Broken. You. He doesn't need anything from you. See, Jesus died for you, a sinner without everything to offer him except your sin. He paid the price so that he could redeem you from that sin and you could be forever accepted by the Father. I love what one pastor wrote. He said, Jesus builds his new world not by people parading their virtues, but by people admitting their failures. Man, I'd like that to be how people describe Redeemer. It's a place where people don't parade their virtues. They admit their failures. He goes on to write All we need in order to qualify with Jesus is to be done with pretending. Are you done with pretending? Or are you so worried about what everyone else thinks? What are you doing right now so that others will see? what are you doing with the hope that someone will accept you? Like, what's behind the mask that no one is allowed to see? See, once we start to identify where we're being hypocritical, then we're ready for the final thing, which is the cure for hypocrisy. We, we will find it in this passage, but it doesn't really help us until we first acknowledge this is, this is how hypocrisy is manifesting itself in my life. What's the cure? Well, one particular religious leader, he's been watching Jesus' interaction with these different groups, and so he comes up to Jesus with a question of his own, but notice his reason for asking it's much different than theirs. He, he honestly cares what Jesus says. Look at verse 28. It says, one of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which... Command is the most important of them all. And Jesus will answer him by quoting from the Old Testament. And the scribe will, who's earnestly desiring the truth, will recognize the truth immediately. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. There's no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's starting to get it. He's realizing that it's not really about what you do on the outside, the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, that God's after something much deeper, the real you, the heart. Like God isn't, has never desired just pure conformity to a list of sort of religious regulations and guidelines. God is after the deepest part of you. See, God doesn't want mask and perfume pretenders. He wants authentic worshipers who come in all of their brokenness and messiness. So when Jesus answered this man's question, we find three steps to take to cure hypocrisy. So if we've identified it and we want to put it to death, here's what we do. Step number one, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. This is where it begins. It begins by listening to Jesus. The religious leaders, they ask Jesus questions, but they're not listening to him. Right? How many parents have said, you're not listening to me? And your child says, and they repeat what you said, but you're like, yeah, I know you heard it, but you're not listening to it. See the difference between this group that came and this man who came. They came and they, they were talking to Jesus, but they were, just, they were thinking about what they wanted. And here comes a man who earnestly desires, tell me, what, what do I do? What is the great command? This man comes with a posture of humility. He has witnessed the wisdom from Jesus. And here's what he's realized. Here is the one in whom there is no hypocrisy. He wants to learn from him. Are you listening to Jesus? How do we listen to Jesus? Well, we listen to Jesus through his word. Notice how many times Jesus answers by quoting scripture. So in his first answer, he references Genesis 1. His second answer comes from Genesis and Deuteronomy with a follow-up from Exodus. His third answer is from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Then he quotes from Psalm 110. And he's showing us this, the way you listen to me is to listen to my word which points you to me. I mean, he is, after all, the king. The one who would come at the beginning and will come again at the end. I mean, this is the king who has the authority to say to this man, you're almost in my kingdom. I want you to consider some of the things that Jesus has said in this passage. Jesus has taught us about the image of God and how it shapes all of the decisions we make. He affirms the sovereignty of God over government and the role citizens play in supporting the government unless the government opposes our first priority Of giving ourselves to God. He clarifies the nature of the new creation, assuring us that the hope to come is more glorious and wonderful than we can now imagine that the the marvelous thing that God is building upon the cornerstone of Jesus is worthy of our hope and longing. He reminds us that the promises of God will come to pass, that death cannot hinder what God guarantees. He simplifies the law of God while Still showing its great complexity that every single part of us, our soul, our mind, our strength, our heart, all of it is to be spent in loving service to him. He guides our relationships by placing them within the greater context of loving our neighbors. He assures us that though he humbled himself as a human, that he is Lord over everyone, including the great kings of the past. He identifies the heart motive that leads to hypocrisy. He highlights genuine faith and the radically inclusive nature of his kingdom. He notices all those, even those most overlooked and ostracized by society who come to him by faith. Now, brothers and sisters, we can listen to so many things. Right, that that little phone in our pocket, we can get voices from all over the world, current, past, living, dead, so many things. And the one thing that should drown them all out is the voice of our king. So listen to Jesus. Then worship God alone. This is what he means when he says love the Lord your God with all your heart. Worship is what you long for and live for. And, and Jesus is saying long for God, live for God. So hypocrisy happens when we place too much value on what others think about us. And so Here's the best way to guard ourselves against being consumed about others' opinions is to focus on what God says. So, here's what I mean. I think this is vitally important, so we're getting near the end. Just stay with me. If we love God supremely, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we will understand that our acceptance from him is not based upon our own work, it's not based upon our own effort, it is 100% of his grace. And the more that we learn to rest in his acceptance, purchased for us by the sacrifice of Jesus in our place, received by faith alone, then the less dependent we become on the approval and acceptance of others. See, there is this, direct correlation between our view of God and our view of people when you see God for who he is and you understand what God has done for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ you will not fear others opinions one author wrote he said if you have ever walked among giant redwoods you will never be overwhelmed by the size of a dogwood tree Or if you've been through a hurricane, a spring rain is nothing to fear. If you have been in the presence of the Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. See, the approval and acceptance of others, this is what drives hypocrisy. The approval and acceptance of others. This seems insignificant when you realize that the creator of the universe, the one who upholds it with his own hands the one who made and fashioned you, has already given you his approval and acceptance through Jesus. You see, because of what Jesus did for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we have confidence that we have been accepted by God. This leads to the third step. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. When you no longer need acceptance and approval from others, that's when you're free to love them. See, I, I, I really want you to get this. Nothing kills love for others like needing their approval. See, if, if you are desperate for someone's approval, then you will do whatever is necessary to maintain a certain image in front of them. Like Everything you do will be filtered through this desire to sort of protect the image so they'll accept you. So if they need help, you'll be the first to raise your hand, but you're not helping because you love them. You're helping because your hope is that they'll respond by receiving you. So this is no longer driven by love for them. You can only love your neighbor when you don't need them to validate you. So so consider these religious leaders that are doing all these things described in verses 38 through 40. When they look out and they see people, how do they see them? They see them as people who can provide something they need. These are the people who can provide the affirmation and the honor and the position and power that I need. These are commodities to be spent Said I can gain what I want. Now think about how Jesus sees people in the Gospel of Mark. What's it say? He says when he sees the crowd, he is moved with compassion on them. Jesus doesn't need anything from them, so he's free to love them. This is how Jesus calls us to live. We don't look at what we can get from others. We look at how we can give to them. We serve with no expectation that we return the favor. I mean, if... If we get this, here's what the gospel teaches. You have received God's favor, then why do I need someone else's favor? What's that gonna do for me? We are dearly loved by God. This is true of all those who know and follow Jesus. We did not win his approval. We cannot lose it. And so his approval of us is what frees us to Give our lives in love to others. It's what frees us to be mocked, like we heard from Brad, as being ignorant. Okay. I've been accepted by Jesus. My day, my week, my standing is not based upon your opinion of me. See, hypocrisy can't... Someone who's overcome with hypocrisy, can't love their neighbor because they can't be honest with their neighbor. Your level of love is directly related to your level of honesty. Let me ask you, if you see maybe on the nightly news a mob that's rioting, do mobs wear masks so that they can do good deeds for their neighbors? See, until you take off the mask... You will never truly love your neighbor as yourself. So as followers of Jesus, here's what we're being called to do. We're called to be very vigilant about our own walk with Christ. Are we walking in hypocrisy or are are we walking in a type of humility and honesty that characterizes the followers of Jesus? And so we ask these questions so that God in his grace exposes where we're being hypocritical, we repent of it, we receive his grace. I mean, that's what Jesus is showing us. The path he walks is one of honesty, not hypocrisy, one of purity, not one of performance. So here's why I want to end. I want to end by asking you a few questions. And these questions, I hope, will help you think through your own life. Like, where, where might I be demonstrating hypocrisy so that you can turn from it and you can repent of any hypocrisy God brings to light? I'm going to put these questions on Slack so you don't have to try to write them down. I encourage you just to prayerfully consider them. Here's the first question do I regularly admit my sin and seek forgiveness at home and at work? You're a sinner, right? I mean, you sang, if you sang today, you sang about you being a sinner. If you believe that, do you admit it to those closest to you? Do you confess your sin and seek forgiveness? Question number two, when was the last time I confessed my sin honestly to a brother or sister at Redeemer? This is how we know we believe the gospel, is when we can confess our sin honestly to someone knowing they might reject us for it. And here's why we can do it. Because we know we will never be rejected by God because of our sin. In other words, because I've been accepted by God, I'm free to be open about my sin with someone even if they reject me. But nothing kills hypocrisy like honesty about sin. Question number three, how often am I convicted of my sin when reading my Bible or listening to a sermon? This one shows us whether or not we're listening to Jesus. If you're listening to Jesus, you're really listening and wanting to hear, he's gonna correct you. And so how often are you hearing his voice correct you? Is that why you're going to the scripture? Is that why you're here this morning? Did you come at least in part with an attitude of humility saying, God, teach me today, show me. Fourth question, am I regularly worried about what people are saying about me? Do you feel this? I wonder what they're saying, I wonder what they're thinking, how will they respond to this? What impression does this give them? Finally, do I see people for what they can do for me or as those I can serve? My prayer is this, that God will expose the hypocrisy in each of us for this purpose. And here's the beauty, we repent of it and we receive grace to walk in honesty and openness with God and with each other. Let's pray together. Father, show us where we're hypocritical. It's hard to think about these things. They're not the most pleasant things to think about, but we know that this is actually the path to grace. That is your grace that exposes hypocrisy, and it's your grace that gives us the power and resources to repent Of hypocrisy, that this is all of grace. That taking off the mask, that removing the costume, that no longer playing the game is a way to freedom and life, to deep and full and meaningful relationships of deep love for you with all of our being and of true loving service to our neighbors. So, God, in your grace, will you expose our hypocrisy, give us grace to repent and experience your kind acceptance and approval through Christ. And may that motivate us to lives of service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.